Hey, 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 this is Brian Johnson with the Mid-City Vineyard Weekly Conversation and Podcast. If you want to learn a little bit more about Mid-City Vineyard, you can check us out on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard Church, Instagram at Mid-City Vineyard, and you can find us online, midcityvineyard.org. Also, if you would like to donate and contribute to the work that Mid-City Vineyard is accomplishing in Mid-City, New Orleans, you can text the letters MCV to 77977. It'll walk you through an easy app, a super easy way to give, and uh, of course all donations are uh, tax deductible, and we really appreciate those offerings and those gifts. We've been in a series entitled, I've Always Wondered for the last number of weeks, it's probably going on 10 weeks now, where we've uh, asked people to ask their questions that they have about the faith uh, and the questions that they've often wondered about. And so this week, the question was, what were the politics of Jesus? Was Jesus a political person? Uh, If so, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat or or what would that look like? What were Jesus' actual politics? So this was a a really uh, great conversation for us. So we're going to head on over. Hope you enjoy this. Much peace to you. Everything, no matter the topic, seems to me to be split into either liberal or conservative views. Now, I'm not a political person. I'm not really into politics. Uh, To me, it's just another way to build a wall to keep the others out. So my question is, is everything always meant to be political? And if so, how does it fit into tearing down walls and divisions and living into the way of Jesus? Ultimately, what were Jesus' thoughts on this? Now, what I uh, chose to do with this particular question, because this is... This is a very common question theologically and and doctrinally and just as people are looking at the historical Jesus and trying to understand the teachings of Jesus, ultimately, was Jesus a political person? And if so, what were Jesus' politics? So in order to answer this question, what I'd I'd really like to do is is give you a good deal of history so that we can understand a couple of things. Uh, Primarily, what was Jesus' message What was the context of Jesus' message, and was that message political or not? So here's how we would begin this. Um, You've heard of Julius Caesar before? Now, many of us, perhaps, when you were in school, you read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, uh, and that's where we got most of our information about Caesar. And we understand the Ides of March, and we understand, maybe we do, maybe we don't, uh, the Ides of March, March 15th, when Caesar was assassinated, Julius Caesar was assassinated. But here's, here's what's happening. In 44 BCE, so now we're thinking we're, we're about, this is about 40 years before the birth of Christ. In 44 BCE, Julius Caesar is the emperor of the Roman Republic. And in, during this time, Julius Caesar is, is kind of conquering that, that, that uh part of the world right there, that known part of the world where Rome is conquering Spain and they're conquering, they're working in Germania and they're working in some of these different areas. And Julius Caesar is an incredibly powerful ruler. But conquering all these lands wasn't enough for for Caesar. Caesar actually, there there was some civil war brewing in Rome itself and Caesar, Julius Caesar, wanted to be known as and understood as a king, understood as and be a king and be a god, so to speak. 
And so uh, Julius Caesar is kind of working his way and trying to figure out how to put the pieces together. But then all of a sudden on March the 15th, the Ides of March, beware the Ides of March. You remember this from Julius Caesar or from Shakespeare's Caesar? On, Ju uh, uh, on March 15th, Brutus and the Roman Senate assassinate Julius Caesar. Interesting, interestingly enough, after they assassinate Caesar, they posthumously deify him, giving him the name Divus Julius, which basically is that Julius Caesar is now a god. They deify him, so to speak. Now, upon his death, Julius Caesar has an adopted son, a man by the name of Octavian. He also had some real, some, some uh, um, uh, biological children, but it was his, this child that wasn't even adopted. It was posthumously, he wrote it in his will that Octavian would come into his family. And Octavian would take over the rule. And so Octavian, a man after fame and glory, took upon the name himself, and this is beautiful, think about this, Divi Phileus. Octavian was known as the son of God. That was the title that Octavian took. Now Octavian came to be known as Caesar Augustus. And he would rule Rome for decades. Caesar Augustus, the son of God, would rule Rome for decades. Placing his own image on currency. Uh, erecting monuments and statues. Uh, and all of these kinds of things. And in order to rule, what he would do is he would take, wherever they would conquer an area, the son of God, Octavian, would take subordinates and he would place them in these provinces to rule for him. Okay, So they would, they would conquer a particular province and he would place a governor in that particular area. That governor would report back to Octavian and would rule over those people. Now there were also, there was this very peculiar group of people in this area known as uh, Jerusalem at the time. It was like Palestine at the time. It was this peculiar people who uh, were of a peculiar religion, the Jewish people. And so in order not to overly disrupt, because the Jewish people had their, their own God and their, their Yahweh, and they were trying to do their own thing. And so instead of trying to completely disrupt the system, Octavian placed a man by the name of Herod the Great, who was half Jew, half Arab, in uh, this place to be known as the King of the Jews. And so Herod the Great, the King of the Jews, ruled right there in Jerusalem over this Jewish group of people. You should already start seeing some of these kinds of titles that are being thrown around. The Son of God, the King of the Jews, and these, these different uh, titles and, and, and responsibilities. Now Herod the Great was an incredible ruler, incredible when we speak of ruthless, that's really what we mean. Herod the Great was so ruthless that at one point, anyone who would come up against his rule, he would just have them killed. And we still hear of this in countries today, don't we? But Herod the Great was very good at it. Herod the Great had one of his, he had like 10 wives. So he had one of his wives murdered. Uh, he had three of his sons executed because they were conspiring against him. At one point, Herod the Great, the king of the Jews, was said to be uh, by Julius, or I'm sorry, not Julius, by Octavian, by Caesar Augustus. It's quoted that Caesar Augustus once said, it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. You stand a better chance of surviving if you're one of Herod's pigs and not one of his sons. So much so that according to the Christian scriptures in the book of Luke, you might be familiar with this story, but Herod gets word 
that there was a baby born, and the prophecy said that this particular baby would be known as the king of the Jews. Well, Herod is the king of the Jews, and he can't have someone else coming in on his territory. So Herod, in the book of Luke, orders that all of the baby boys throughout the province under the age of two be executed. You might be familiar with this story when Jesus is, is, when Jesus is born, and there's the story in Luke about Herod sending out the soldiers to go and kill every single baby boy under the age of two. In the church now, it's known as the slaughter of the innocents. And this is how ruthless Herod was. No one can come up against Herod's territory or his rule. So he rules with a very heavy iron fist. Herod dies in 4 BCE. Most scholars believe that Jesus was born in 6 BCE. So by now, Jesus is two years old, probably. And when Herod dies, his territory is split into four sections. Archelaus... One of his sons gets two of those provinces. His son, Philip, gets one of them, and Herod Antipas gets another. And so now you've got these four quarters in this Palestine-Jerusalem area. In this world, in 6 BCE, when Jesus is born, here's the deal. There is one ultimate authority, and that's Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. And there is one allegiance and that is Rome. This is the world that Jesus is born into. Anyone who comes up against that allegiance, anyone who comes up against that reign is ceremoniously executed. That's just that insurrection, you're killed. It's, it's that easy. The world that Jesus lived in and was born into was a highly political world. It was filled with nationalism, it was filled uh, with men who would use violence at any cost to overthrow their enemies. It was a world that was filled with sectarianism. It was a world filled with sexism, ageism, racism, a world ruled by fear and violence. That's how those who were in charge kept ruling the world, using fear and violence. It was a world dominated by the powerful, the successful, the elite, and the rich. It was a world in which Caesar was lord, that was a very common saying, Caesar is Lord. And everyone is okay as long as you stay in your lane and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. In addition to that, you had the Jewish people who were highly religious and had this, this interesting little side, side thing going on. But even the Jewish people understood that Herod's the king of the Jews. If we stay in our lane, Caesar is Lord. Everything just continues to move in a particular way. So Jesus is born. And Jesus, in 6 BCE, when he's born, he grows up in this world. He knows this world. When he's 30 years old, he starts to preach. He starts to walk around the countryside. He starts to walk around the province. And he starts to say things like, the kingdom of God is here. The way of God and the way God lives in the world is here. Right. Yeah. He's saying God's way of running the world is here. Now imagine this, imagine this with me for a moment. Here we go. A world where the poor are elevated. 
Imagine a world where those who are worn out and the, those who are destitute are given rest and they're comforted. A world where people who long for justice actually find it. A world where those who practice mercy aren't run over. A world where those who desire to find spirituality and find rest and to find God, they find it. A world where those who practice peace are rewarded. Imagine a world where anger and resentment are dealt with quickly, where wounds and hurts don't fester. I mean, this is... Imagine a world where people keep their word, they honor their commitments, they follow through on their contracts. Imagine a world where love is the determining factor in relationships, a world where love wins the day, a world where wars cease due to love, a world where racism ceases due to love, a world where the need to win and the need to be right ceases to exist because of the ability to love and so on. Imagine that type of world. Now, whether you realize it or not, what I just, those words I just spoke, I just preached Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus has to say. He's like, listen, the kingdom's here. There's a new world brewing. And I want to invite you to be a part of it. And this is what it looks like. This is what the new world looks like. Now, in modern day terms, it could look like this. It might sound like this. Imagine a society where no person is hungry. Imagine a society where every animal and every human creation is nourished and healthy. Imagine a society where the air is pure and the air is clean and it's, you can breathe. And if you live in California, you don't have to have smog tests. Imagine a society where love is true. It's the true rule of the day. Where brothers look out for brothers and sisters for sisters and everyone is considered equal and valuable and worthy. A society where rights are wronged through the method of forgiveness. Imagine a society where sex is actually considered sacred. And war is actually considered unholy. Or a society where the rich and powerful, just because they're rich and powerful, don't get their way all the time. Or a society where the sick have opportunities to find health and medicine. A society where unborn children are not ripped from their mother's wombs. And at the same time where women have a say over their own bodies. Well, that, that, that can't exist. That's a, that's a paradox. See, the reason we think things like this can't exist is because we have come to believe that we live in a very binary world. It's either this or it's this. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, no, listen, when you find the kingdom, you find the middle. You find this, this ground where God's rule can really reign and people can find love and they can find mercy. This is the invitation of Jesus. This is what's happening in the New Testament. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. And he says this in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says to Peter, he says, Now, Peter, you have said that I am the Christ. You, you've acknowledged that. And he says, I want you to know something. I'm going to build my church on this. I'm going to build my church on this profession that Christ is here. The kingdom is here. And here's what the church is. The church is a society of people that live within a society of people. Now, this is, this is huge for us because as Mid-City Vineyard, how are we going to actually flesh this out? And how are we going to participate in what God's inviting us into? The whole time I've been studying this week and looking at this, I'm going like, man, I so desperately desire, I think, to be a part of what I think Jesus is doing. But it's not really all that easy. Let me explain We've been invited to become part of a movement. In 1 Peter, 
This is what Peter writes. He says, listen now, church, you, Emily, and Angela, and Sidna, and Casey, and Onisa, and Claire, and every person that we should name in here, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Now, when Peter says this, he's not saying, Olisa, you by yourself are a holy nation. Olisa, you by yourself are a royal priesthood. What he's saying is, when you do this, when you are together, when you share this together, when you share life together, when you engage in one another's lives, when you do this, you, plural, are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You're God's possession. You're the ones who declare the praises of God who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So friends, Peter says, I urge you as foreigners, I urge you as exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagan people that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they can see your good deeds and they glorify God, the day that he visits. What is happening here is Peter saying, listen, Christianity, following Jesus is more than a matter of just a new understanding. It's actually an invitation to be a part of an alien or exiled or foreign or migrant people, to use today's term, who make a difference because they see something otherwise that can't otherwise be seen without Christ. And what we're saying here is, is, is St. Augustine said it like this. He said, the church, we are a heavenly city on a pilgrimage in this world. Now, I've told you before, this world, ultimately, earth is our home. Earth was created for human beings to live. Earth is our home, but there is a difference between earth as our home and the culture of the world, so to speak. And so, what St. Augustine is saying is, you're... you're your way of living is foreign to what the world understands. And so you're a, you're a colony within. And the idea here is as the colony within, you learn to live as though God is the ruler. So, so we are our, we're kind of like our, our own thing, so to speak. We learn to discern together how to live in the world. Our president or our emperor, or our king, or whatever, is, is not whoever or whomever it is at the time, but Jesus is that. Jesus is the emperor, the king, the president, the governor, the, the one who we submit to that rule and that reign. And Jesus does rule over the whole world. That happened at the cross and the resurrection. Jesus rules over the whole world, just the whole world doesn't get it yet. And so Jesus is saying, so show them. And you don't have to, the way we show people is that we, we connect together, we learn how to live together, we live different than what the, 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 the culture says, and I'll like unpack that a little bit more in just a moment's time. But understand this, Christianity is mostly a matter of politics, but it is the politics of the gospel. The call to be a part of the gospel is the call to be adopted by an alien people, a migrant people, a foreign people, an exiled people, to join a countercultural phenomenon, a new way of living, a new governance as the church. And this was the understanding in the early church. So what happened in the very early church is people were like, oh, all of a sudden, okay, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Oh, oh, violence 
and power over other people is not the way that God's kingdom works. So we're supposed to practice nonviolence and peacemaking. Oh, holding on to resentment and grudges is not the way to see relationships move forward. We're called to be people who reconcile broken relationships. Oh, racism is not the way of God's kingdom, even though it is the way of Rome, even though it is in our own Jewish community. It's racism doesn't have a place. God's kingdom calls for the breaking down of walls. Oh, in God's kingdom, see, men and women stand on the same level playing field, but in ancient Rome, they didn't stand anywhere near on the same playing field. You see, these are the kinds of things that Jesus is like. We're changing the, the rules. We're living according to a different set of rules and principles and guidelines and, and a way of doing life. This is what got Jesus killed. Jesus was killed. It was a political thing because he went against what the religion said and he went against what the empire said. Jesus was ultimately, and Jesus' message and Jesus' disciples, it, originally they were empire crushers. <laughs> they were like, Rome, we understand that you're the big bad empire, but we're, we don't participate in your thing because we're God's people. We participate in God's thing. And if it goes against your thing, Rome, we're sorry. You'll just have to kill us. And that's exactly what happened. For 300 years, until Emperor Constantine became emperor in Rome. Emperor Constantine, in 313, he decided, you know what? I've heard about these Christians. I've seen some things. I'm going to become a Christian. And the reason he did this, and there's a, there's a longer story behind it, but basically Constantine had a vision when his army was going into war where he, he saw a vision of a cross, and then his army won that particular war. So he thought, oh, well, this Christian God must be smiling on me. I'll become a Christian. I'll decriminalize Christianity. For 300 years, it was against the law to be a Christian. I'll decriminalize Christianity. I'll become a Christian. Most scholars don't believe he really did it. We'll put crosses on our shields. We'll march out. We'll destroy our enemies in the name of this Christ. And we'll make Christianity the state religion. And in 313 A.D., the whole thing went downhill for Christians. Because where you once would get killed for your faith, and so to stand in the place of living the kingdom life, it would get you killed. Now all of a sudden, the Christians and the church was given power. And you know what happens when you get power, right? Whenever you get power and you get a little bit of taste of power, you really don't want to let go of it. Because honestly, it feels good. I mean, it just, it just does. The church was co-opted by the state. And now Christianity is the state religion in Rome. And for the last 1,700 years, the church has been trying to figure out a way to get itself uncoopted by the state. And it hasn't done a great job. It's been very difficult. For the last 1,700 years, 700 years, the church has been trying to wrestle itself free. Those who are called by God to, to embody a social alternative that the world can't know on its own terms. But see, what happens to the church is if you have the, the position of power, you don't want to rock the boat too much because you could lose that power. And when you lose that power, it doesn't feel good anymore. But here's the thing. The church 
does not need some sort of Christian culture to prop it up. Because the church is a, a living, breathing thing in and of its own. It might be, in my opinion, the decline of the old Constantinian paradigm between the church and the world means that finally we become free once again to actually be living witnesses to what Christ is doing in the world. I think that the separation of church and state is the most wonderful thing. It, the church needs the separation of church and state, and yet I've seen for years now the church trying to fight its way back into the state. I mean, even things like getting prayer back in school, we don't need, as, as, Christ, as the church, the church doesn't need to get prayer back in school. By actually not having prayer in school, it gives Christians an opportunity to simply live out their faith and be participants in their faith. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's Constantinian, it's a Constantinian paradigm and understanding that we should have church in school, or church in school, or prayer in school, because we want to be so joined with the state. But the state can only, listen, if, you, if, you're, if you're following, the state only operates according to the ways that the world can operate, no matter what state it is. Iraq, China. Israel, America, Ethiopia, Cuba, Nigeria, all operate according to, we always have to look out for us, what's best for us. And the way we maintain power is to exert power, to practice violence over. We're always manipulating deals and getting, and listen, that's what worldly powers do. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. It's not how God's kingdom, it's not how Jesus set it up. We're not chartered by an emperor or a governor or a president or a state or a country. You and I are not. And so what has to happen today is the church has to continue to work and figure out, okay, well, where do we, where do we, how do we learn to live within the context? I mean, my greatest goal when I preach and when I think about this and when I pray for us is, what if the state finally one day, and this is not going to happen in our lifetime, but what if the state was finally like, you know what, it's illegal to be a Christian in this country anymore. And you can't have church services anymore. Like, would we all, would we survive? Or, or would we all just be like, no, 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 the state has, the state owes it to us to a, a, allow, you know, Christianity to exist. Does it? It didn't when Jesus walked the earth. Could we survive? Could we actually be like, if, if all of our Bibles were taken and thrown out and burned, do we have the love of Christ written on our hearts to the place that we're like, hey, that's fine. We don't need the Bible. We can figure it out. It's already written on our hearts. We already know that love is the way of God, that racism has no place, that power over has no place, that you are my brother and you are my sister regardless of the color of your skin or where you came from. Where is, our, where is our loyalty? Where is our allegiance? The cross is the sign of what happens when one takes God's account of reality more serious than it takes Caesar's account of reality. Okay? The cross is what happens when we take God's way of reality. What is the cross? The cross is the place where we go to die. The cross is the place where Jesus went to die. And to say, on this cross, I will take on all the division, all the pain, all the racism, 
all the ageism, all the sexism. I will take on all the isms. I will take on everything on myself and I will allow it to kill me and I will come back from the dead, thus destroying its power over anyone anymore. I'll take the power of Rome and I'll allow it to kill me so that you understand there, there, there are no divisions. I'll take all this on me. The cross is what happens when we take that reality seriously, which is why Jesus says, I invite you to lose your life to follow me. Die and you'll find your life. You'll find freedom in living this kingdom reality. The cross stands as God's eternal no to the powers that be and the powers of death and God's eternal yes to humanity. The church, the church asserts that God rules the world, not nations. We live in a world that understands that nations rule the world. The cross says nations don't rule the world. God rules the world. And the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend the boundaries of Caesar. And so the question becomes, you know, it's like, well, ultimately, and I, I would suggest that in Matthew 10, 4, if I had written a question for this series, and I'm going I'm to close with this so we can share communion. If I had written a question for this series, I would have asked this question. Matthew 10, 24. Matter of fact, let me read it so that we're really on the same page here. Matthew 10, 34. This, is my, this would be my question. So I'm going to ask my question, and then I'm going to answer it. Jesus, do not, does Jesus' words, do not suppose that I came to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, you succeeded there, Jesus. <laughs> not in my family. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That would have been my question. Like, did Jesus like forget his own message for a minute? I did not come to bring peace but a sword to divide families. What's going on there? Jesus came to establish a new way of living. Jesus and Jesus' life is all about allegiance. That's, that's Jesus' message. Jesus is, listen, the kingdom's here. Get in on this. Where do you want to pledge your allegiance? And Jesus is saying, in families, in families, this is going to split people right down the middle. Because there are going to be some who are going to say, I pledge my allegiance to, to Christ and the kingdom of God. And others who will say, no, 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 I pledge my allegiance to our Jewish heritage and religion. I pledge my allegiance to Christ and the kingdom and the, and the way in which Christ wants to go. Others will say, no, 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 no. Caesar is Lord. And this, if you've ever, you've probably experienced this in your family, where you, you come down on different sides of something like this and all of a sudden it drives a wedge. That's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, there is going to be, Jesus is all about the peace, but Jesus also knows that when you come down to choosing where you pledge your allegiance, it's going to drive people apart. It has that potential. My question is, for all of us, and this is why it's political, is what flag do we fly? What flag do we fly? I had a wonderful conversation this week with uh, some folks about uh, flags, actually. And we were talking about um, flag, uh, country, uh, flags that represent countries. You know, and we have these here because right now we have at least five nations. We have four flags. 
We're working on yours, Miguel. But we have five nations. Oh, and we're working on Kristen's. So we have six different nations represented in our very small church here. That's where you're from. But is it who you are? What flag do you fly? Ultimately, for kingdom of God people, the flag we fly is the kingdom of God flag. Like this, this is who this is who I am. This is where I get my identity. It, not even not you know even there are other flags that I think that I, I'm learning or I'm understanding that more and more are becoming political. But whether you're you're flying the pride flag or you're flying the Black Lives Matter flag or you all these are. But ultimately, where is your identity? You are child of God in the kingdom of God. So now, how do we pledge our allegiance there first and foremost? And now, as a church, how do we figure out to live within that context? It's a big deal where we work together to say economically, socially, physically, how do we, how do we work together to care for one another, to live out the ways that we believe Christ is calling us, to ebb and flow in the ways of Jesus? And you say, well, it so I have to be socialist or I have to be liberal or Democrat or I have to be a Republican? No, I, I don't think Jesus could have aligned with any one of those. I think if you would have said, Jesus, are you a socialist or are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? He would have said, yes, yes, yes. Because you can't, it, there, there's not a, there's something bigger. That's why I think our communion table is so beautiful because some of us in the room line up really, really big on, on, on issues on the right. Some of us line up really, really on issues of, a, of the left, okay? Ultimately, I think there's a place where we have to, the rubber's gotta hit the road, and we've gotta come and say, hmm, maybe my left issues aren't really God's issues, and maybe some of my right issues aren't God's issues, and maybe there's, maybe it's not a binary world. Maybe God's kingdom is not black or white. I firmly believe that. So the question is, is Jesus political? Yes. Uh, would Jesus have ever run for office? I highly doubt it. Could you run for office? Uh, yeah. But like, I don't think that the answer to our world is getting a bunch of Christians in political office because most of, most, lots of times Christians ourselves, we've been co-opted. How do we get back to being the people of God, really seeking? Even and together on, on some of these some of these kinds of things. Last thing we share communion. Three different types of churches that I really understand. There's the activist church, that's the church that's always trying to be good for society and, and keep building society up. There are a number of those in town. Then there's the conversionist church, that's the church that actually left activism. They were like, no, activism is not the way we're changing the world. We don't need to be active in this. We need to convert people. We need to convert people to Jesus. That's the way we change the world. And then there's a third type of church, which is the church that had the most impact during the Nazi reign of Germany. Because during the Nazi reign, if you go back and do a lot of, if you do some reading, you'll notice that most of the church backed the Nazis. Most of the Christian church in Germany backed the Nazis. Except for the confessing church. And the confessing church was like, you know what? We need some activism. We need some conversion. 
But what we really need to do is we need to be a people connected together who are looking for what God is doing in the world all around us, and we need to be a faithful witness to that. And it will include being active. It will include converting people. But the confessing church also knew that conversions sometimes could take 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 years. They said, how do we continue to find God in the context of where we are so that we can really serve the kingdom the best way? I think that's, that's, I think that's what God's doing with us here. Really moving us in a place of, hey, let's break down right. Let's break down left. Let's find Jesus at the communion table. Let's find common ground together, and let's continue to ask Christ, what are you doing? What are you doing here and now? Where do we pledge our allegiance? Our hearts, our souls, our lives. There's only one kingdom of God, and no nation has it. Because all the nations are kingdoms of the world, but there's one kingdom of God, and that's the kingdom that we belong to. Thank you.